everyone. This is Julie Kelleher. Welcome to another episode of my podcast, Writing Stuff, where I speak to local authors about the, the stuff they are writing. In this episode, I will be speaking to one of my pals from my writing group, uh, Jason Rubin. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. It's great to be on your podcast. Yeah. Um, tell the uh, listeners a little bit about your background, something about yourself. I am uh, a writer, and by that I mean I write for profession, and I write for fun, and I just write all the time. I work for a small communications agency in the south end of Boston, and uh, was dared a few years ago to write a novel. Prior to that, I never thought of myself as a writer in quite that way, more of a nonfiction guy. But I've lived in Malden for 10 years and have two daughters. And so I do a lot of uh, juggling between the writing I do during the day, the writing I try to do at night, and the other responsibilities of life. You say um, your, your book, Ancient Tales, newly told. Actually, there are two complete novellas in uh, there, and they uh, you call them historical fiction, historical novels. Yes. Would you call it historical fiction? Yes. Okay. Um, what exactly is the process in writing something? We'll get, we'll get into the book later, but I was just wondering okay. what the um, what your process is in writing historical fiction. Well, as I, as I said before, I always considered myself a nonfiction person. I was born on Abraham Lincoln's birthday, and from the time I was literate, I just read every biography I could get my hand on, every book about the Civil War. I was very interested in history, and when I got to college, I became a journalism major, never really intending to be a journalist, a newspaper journalist. But I knew I wanted to write, and I knew I wanted a steady paycheck. So I sort of went into, when I studied that, went into public relations, and um, have always used the journalism skills of interviewing and researching and taking notes and you know analyzing information and making decisions about what to use and how to construct them into a sort of cogent um, piece of writing. And so when it came to writing my first novel, I was dared to do it like two days before NaNoWriMo, oh, which is yeah. National Novel Writing Month, which happens every November. The idea being that from November 1st to November 30th, you would turn out about a 50,000 word novel, which is a ridiculous. I, 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 ha <laughs> I have to admit, I always sputter at about the 10th or 12th day. I find I look and I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? <laughs> So I had just a couple of days to think about what to write about. And really, the first thing that popped into my mind was this song that I liked called Maddie Groves, which had been recorded in 1969 by Fairport Convention, a British folk rock group. But actually, its origins go back to the 17th century. It's one of the um, Scottish and English, English folk ballads that had been collected by actually a Bostonian named Francis Child and put into a compendium in the 19th century. And it's a sort of classic old tale of adultery and murder between the classes. And it sort of fascinated me as a story and as a song. And so I thought I would delve into that. But the song is eight minutes long, and there's only four characters. 
and you can't really make a novel out of just that. So I had to do research into the time period, you know, what was 17th century England like, what were the customs, when did it take place? The first line of the song is a holiday, a holiday, the first one of the year. Uh, Lord uh, Darnell and his wife the, went to church, the gospel for to hear. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I'm thinking, so what is that first holiday of the year that you would go to church for? I presumed it was Easter. So then I started doing research into Easter time uh, traditions and uh, gradually, you know, found a location and and built the story from that, inventing new characters and subplots and things like that. But it really required me to do a lot of research into that time period and that and that place. I was fascinated with the Maddie Groves uh, story because I actually first heard the song in the movie Songcatcher. Hmm. So I knew about the the story itself, but I just loved the way you you know, you filled it out with all these different characters. And how do you decide which characters go where? You know, you have the these wonderful I was gonna call them love triangles, but they're all they're really, you know They're trapezoids. They're, really. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, how, how did you, I mean, did you have trouble deciding, you know, which characters to put in there? Well, so the, the, the characters in the song are, there's the, a lord and lady mm-hmm. who apparently have an unhappy marriage because the lady ends up in a tryst with Maddie. Um, and then there's the faithful servant who overhears this conspiracy and rides over to warn the Lord that that's going to happen, and that creates this showdown between the Lord and and Maddie. So Maddie is, you know, somewhat of a rogue, uh, a womanizer, and I needed to represent that somehow, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to have just, you know, episode after episode of sexual conquest. So I needed one character, uh, a female character, who would embody all those kind of womanizing traits uh, of Maddie. And... So I, I created the character of, um, of Alexandra, whose name came from actually uh, the real name of Sandy Denny, who was the singer of Fairport Convention and who sang the, the song that inspired the story. So, so she's kind of stood for all the conquests, but I didn't want her to be this sort of weak, taken advantage of woman so I created a backstory for her that showed that she was you know independent and and strong and proud and worked hard and you know she, between her and Maddie they didn't get the better of the other they were really equals he also needed a buddy so I, I in, created a character named Quentin Wainwright and I really do like that name. Yeah. I, I really don't like <laughs> naming characters is the worst part of writing. Yeah, to yeah, me, I think so. But when I yeah. hit, I hit on that one, I kind of like that. So he's kind of a husky, burly kind of kind of guy. And then there's just sort of uh, you know business associates uh, of the Lord. But yeah, the idea was if the lady and Maddie are having this uh, this tryst, there's got to be a reason for it. So I had to think about what their marriage was like. This was a time of, of, you know, marriages that were that were made, you know, oh, not, uh, not, not through romance. Yeah, but arranged. Arranged. Yeah. That, yeah. And, um, yeah, so I created basically the, you know, the backstory of two people meeting and just never really connecting and there being a lot of frustration. 
and then I added a few other little Phillips, you know, along with that. So um, the the servant is jealous of Maddie, and uh, the lady is you know desirous of Maddie, and the Lord is somewhat desirous of Maddie. Mm, yeah, and, I, I thought and, that was a very interesting addition. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so there's a there's sort of a lot going on there, but not too much, but you needed to sort of build that out. And so there's all these other plots that, that come into play that, that fleshed it out and made it into a book that, as, as you say, it's sort of a novella. Technically, my books are longer than a novella and shorter than a novel, mm-hmm. which turns publishers off. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but but two of them fit uh, very neatly into my current volume. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what is the other story? Tell us about the other story. So having finished the first yeah. book, I was thought, okay, I was dared, I did it, that's fine. Don't really need to go through that again. <laughs> uh, I was listening to a song. Again, the first the first book was inspired by a song, and yeah. the second one is, was as well. I was listening to an album by the jazz singer Cassandra Wilson, and there's a song on this album called Solomon Sang. And from the lyrics, I could tell she was singing about King Solomon. Mm. But there was a line that confused me that went, and when he lay down with Makeda, Solomon sang. And mm. I, I had never heard the word or the name Makeda associated with King Solomon. And, you know, I was a, a dutiful Jewish boy who went to Sunday mm-hmm. school yeah. and uh, was bar mitzvah and everything. And so... Um, you know, I thought I I knew the basics, uh, least of the kings. So I googled the name Makeda, and I found that it was the Ethiopian name for the Queen of Sheba. Ah, okay. And the Queen of Sheba in the Hebrew Bible is never named; she's just known as the as the Queen of Sheba. So I thought that was interesting. And as I read uh, a little further, there was apparently uh, a book, sort of a foundational theological historical book of the Ethiopians called the Kebra Nagast, which means uh, the glory of kings, which tells the story of Solomon and Makeda meeting, as they do in the Hebrew Bible, but it goes further than that. They actually have a child, and this child grows up to become an emperor of Ethiopia, and Ethiopian rulers into the 20th century with Haile Selassie I trace their lineage back to this fruit of Solomon and Makeda's Oh, wow, I didn't realize that. Yes. It's true. Wow. Um, which is why, you know, the Haile Selassie was the one whom the, uh, the Rastafarians believed was God incarnate, fulfilling, oh, okay. fulfilling an ancient uh, uh, prophecy that a black king would arise over Ethiopia. And so he was known as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Conquering Lion of the tribe of Judah. Solomon was from the tribe of Judah, as was his father, David. Yeah. So all this was sounding really interesting to me and a little bit juicy. <laughs> so I went, I went back to my handy-dandy Bible, and I went to see what you know the original text says about the meeting of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, which is told in the first book of Kings, I think chapter 10 maybe, but it's only 13 verses. And basically uh, she hears about Solomon and how wise he is. She's intrigued. She comes to visit. She asks him tough questions. She delights in his answers. He gives her a bunch of parting gifts and she goes back to uh, her land. And that's all it says. So, you know, with given that text versus the Kebra Nagast, 
with, you know, sex and progeny in it, I decided to do a little more reading um, and actually got a copy of the Kebernegast. Found that it was uh, sort of a much more interesting story. It just occurred to me, well, you know, maybe I could write about this because I doubted that a lot of people, at least maybe white people, at least maybe Jewish people, knew about the, the fact that there was an Ethiopian version of that story. And, and so I thought I would address that. And so I found myself writing another book. Yeah. Now, and again, um, I'm going to say me, ask you the uh, same question. How did you decide to fill out the basic story? Well, this was a little tougher because again, the, the references in the, in the Bible were few and, and not very revealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I leaned on what was in the uh, Kebernegast, the Ethiopian version. But at the same time, there's a lot of writings in the Bible and in the Apocrypha that are ascribed traditionally to Solomon, uh, such as the Book of Ecclesiastes, uh, obviously the Song of Solomon, Mm -hmm. various Mm -hmm. Psalms that biblical scholars today, you know, do not believe that King Solomon actually wrote if there even was historically, a King Solomon. Oh, that's interesting. Because yeah. as, as, as a Catholic, you know, I, I know all about the New Testament, but I have to admit my knowledge of the Old Testament is woefully incomplete. So I think I just find that fascinating. Yeah, well, so I, I decided that, you know, these, these various writings, some of which are very beautiful, very interesting, whether they were written by Solomon or not, if there's any hint that he may have composed them, then they were fair game for me. Right. Yep. So yep. I, I just applied things as I saw fit. The Queen of Sheba is actually mentioned uh, in the New Testament once. I want to say the book of Matthew near the end. She's called the Queen of the South. Oh, sort okay. of like a warning. The Queen of the South will rise up because she sought you know, wisdom from Solomon. It was you know, a, a sort of a precursor to the end of days. At the same time, the more I researched it, the more I found that um, Makeda is also mentioned in the Quran. She's called oh. she's called Bilkis there. Interesting. And, and there's some strange stories about you know a bird that was spying on her and flew to Solomon and told Solomon about her and and stories about her having like very hairy legs. Uh, <laughs> and there, it's just yeah, there's some yeah. just. Some strange stuff there. So I, I I was assembling a great deal of material. Plus, Freemasonry is based it is based on the Solomon building the temple, mm-hmm. and so that and that which plays into the story because that's basically how Sol- how Makeda learned about Solomon because Solomon was going to build the temple and sent out ships to all the nations in the area asking for materials, and so. Solomon's uh, Makeda, sorry, sent her uh, chief trader um, named Tamrin to go up there and sell their cedars and their their jewels and their uh, all just all the artisan materials mm-hmm. that yeah, they had. Yeah. So that's how the initial connection was made. So really, I had almost too much information, and I had to sift through and and see what I really wanted to use. You know, what sort of advanced the story in an interesting way, but I wanted, you know, I really wanted it to be sort of a, a sort of a liberal, you know, partaking of lots of different sources without being slavishly devoted to any one of them. Yes, uh, certainly yeah. being respectful of all of them, but not treating any of them as, as gospel truth. And, um, and again, you know, inventing characters where needed. 
um, you know, just to advance a story and get some subplots going underneath. Oh, okay. Um, I want to go back because you also are very, you know, upfront in your introduction about almost like your state of mind when um, writing these two stories and you were in very different places in your life. And I was Mm. wondering if you wanted to expound on that. Sure. So um, the first book I wrote when my youngest daughter was three months old. And uh, though she was very young in our marriage, uh, our marriage itself was not on the strongest footing. So she did well. She slept through the first half of November. Mm-hmm. And then she stopped sleeping oh, through the night. Gosh. And so I only got halfway through the month uh, writing it. And then I didn't come back to it until like January the following year for a little bit. And then, you know, bits and bits and pieces. And gradually over, basically it took three years to write the book and three years to rewrite the book while looking for a publisher. And in that time, um, I gradually moved to a separate bedroom within the house and then eventually into my own apartment. So emotionally, it was a really difficult time for me. But it also was, I had a lot of spare time uh, because it's not like somebody was wanting to have me involved with them in the evenings. (laughs) Yeah, I had my evenings. And um, yeah, basically, you know, once I had a room of my own, I was able to devote a lot of time to it. And I had made a conscious decision that I was going to use this time and this period of my life constructively and creatively to take sort of the anger and the sadness and the frustration and and just channel it into something constructive and so I sort of forced myself to to be sad but but to also spend time writing a book and letting that be an accomplishment that I could look to as a way of sort of surmounting the the problems the second book um, I was in a much better place in my life and for that reason it took a little longer to write isn't, because isn't, i was having more fun in my life isn't that funny that the you know your you, your life is good your writing is sporadic to to you know put it mildly but when you when your life is bad it's like oh i gotta write i gotta write i gotta write yeah the um the singer and songwriter john prine had a great quote uh he was asked why so many of his songs are sad and he said well the last thing you want to do when you're having a good time is write a song about it (laughs) and uh i was you know i was i was definitely committed to writing this second book about solomon and Makeda, which i'm not sure if i mentioned is called king of kings Mm -hmm. but at the same time it was it was difficult because it required so much more research and i had so many more things to sort of weigh you know, as to whether I wanted to include or not or how to do it, that I would I would hit a roadblock and would just say, just drop it for a while. I was in sort of, I wasn't in the same, I don't want to say hurry, but I was more driven the first time around to finish the thing. The second time I was happier to just let it linger for however long it, it took. And eventually it was a period of enough people knowing that I was working on a second book 
and asking me how it was going <laughs> when I hadn't touched it in three or four months. That sort of guilted me into, yeah, yeah. you know, so like the last, you know, the last probably six months were, you know, very, I was very hardworking uh, completing the book during that time. All right. Um, do you have, uh, well, what are you working on now? Do you have another novel in your head or lined up or something like that? Yeah. I, and not in my head. I've got yeah. it, I've got it down. Um, and, and these books don't really come sequentially. The, the motivation and the time spent towards it sort of does, but, um, in the, in the midst of, of, doing um, King of Kings, there was this other idea that I had, which was not a historical um, novel and based on my own experience having uh, recurring dreams. Oh. Um, one in particular, which is a dream that I used to have all the time. And it was me being in a car somewhere, going someplace, arriving there, getting out of the car, going up to the door, and then realizing I'd forgotten something. Um, okay. A, wall, a wallet yeah, or something, yeah. and then I have to go back and home and get it. And then once I do that, I can never find that place again. Oh yeah. So it's yeah. not it's not a it's not just about being lost. Yeah. It's about being someplace, not being able to cross that threshold, going back, and then never finding your way. Okay. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And it really bothered me for a long time. And then one day I had, after I had started my current job. And I'd been there for, I don't know, maybe six, eight months. I had the dream again, but this time I actually found my way back. Oh, very and, interesting. And that yeah. was, yeah. And so one of my colleagues uh, analyzed that for me and it just kept, you know, kept coming up in my mind that it'd be interesting to explore that in a novel. So, you know, I've been working on one for a few years, but more diligently in the last a uh, year or so, mm -hmm. but really throwing out a lot of stuff that I had before and adding new stuff. And it keeps changing on me. I keep, you know, thinking of different endings and different ways of doing it. Like I started out writing it in first person, then I changed it to third person. Oh yeah. And now yeah. I'm doing, now I'm trying to do a, a blend of first and third person. Yeah. Oh wow. Which is difficult, yeah. and I don't know why I keep making things difficult for myself. Because <laughs> you're a writer. But I, I know, I know. <laughs> but uh, I am working on it. I am interested in it. It's hard. Sometimes you sit down and you, you're just not making progress or you, you don't like what's down there, and you get sort of dispirited about it. But other times you come in and an idea comes to you or a character lets you know what they want to do, and it just sort of glides, and you just feel really you know, excited about it. Yeah. So yeah. I've, ha I've had more of those days than, than the dispirited days. Yeah. So I'm making progress on it and, you know, we'll see, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't look for it uh, in your, okay. in your local bookstore okay. anytime <laughs> yeah. soon. Okay, great. Um, listen, uh, you do have your book there and I, I'm sure it. our listeners would love to hear you read from it. Okay. And which, which book is that from that? I'm going to read from uh, King of Kings. King, okay. And again, both King of Kings and uh, the first one, uh, the 17th century folk ballad, which is called The Grave and mm -hmm. the Gay. Mm -hmm. Both those books are in a single volume yes. with the umbrella title, Ancient Tales Newly Told. Okay. So I'm going to read a chapter. One thing I did uh, with King of Kings, since it's based on uh, sort of biblical stuff, 
is that I chaptered it in terms of like books. Yes. Books yeah. and chapters. I tried to make it seem like it was, uh, you know, another book of the, of the Bible. So this is sort of a prologue to a book um, that focuses on Makeda. And here she is very impatient because her trader Tamron uh, has journeyed to Israel to, um, to sell his goods to Solomon. And Makeda is both intellectually curious about King Solomon, mm-hmm. but she, she's also starting to feel, and this is someone who on her father's deathbed uh, promised to be chased. But um, as, she, as she has time, <laughs> yeah. as she has time on her hands and she thinks more and more about Solomon, yeah. she starts to get a little more um, sort of fantasizing about what, their own meeting could could be like. Okay, great. She sat on her throne, alone in her palace, having left her bed because sleep did not join her there. It was not the first night that this was so. From the day that Tamron sailed toward Israel until Makeda received word through a network of far-flung messengers that he had arrived and been invited to stay for a time, she was beset with anxiety and inconsolable with uncertainty. For her, this was most unusual. Though she had full faith in Tamron as a traitor, far too much was unknown to her, and there was nothing at present she could do about it. Has Solomon found favor with our good, she wondered? What are he and Tamron doing, discussing? What is Tamron learning, and what? What does Solomon think of Sheba, of me? By day and by night, Makeda tried to imagine what was taking place in Jerusalem, tried to picture herself in Tamron's stead, discoursing directly with Solomon, testing his wisdom and demonstrating her own. She wished she were there, was frustrated that she could not be. If only the mission was completed already, she thought, rising from her throne and walking over to the eastern wall to look out the window at Alumka, the moon god. If only Tamron was just now at home port, on his way to tell me of his adventures, of what he learned from Solomon. The sooner then I could follow my, his journey with one of my own. Yes, Makeda was decided already. She would travel to Jerusalem herself. She could not wait for an overture. As the sovereign of a state not in conflict with Israel, she required no invitation, merely to send word that she was coming. She must. For no matter what Tamron would tell her about what had transpired during his time with Solomon, she knew she would have to experience it all herself. Not because she didn't trust Tamron, but because she needed, had always needed, to gain wisdom firsthand by observation and interaction. So restless was Makeda with the waiting she had to endure that she had begun to make plans for her own trip to Jerusalem. It was the only way to settle her mind. Because the best ships and pilots were already in use and would be too worn upon their return for another long voyage so soon, Makeda endeavored to travel by land with an extensive caravan. This would also give her an opportunity to meet the peoples of southern Arabia along the way. Such personal interactions with people unknown to her, she hoped, would help quell her impatience and make the lengthy journey more bearable. If through sorcery she could fly there like a bird through the air or simply appear as a new shoot that rises through damp soil to meet the sun, the Queen of Sheba would be before the King of Israel even now. As Makeda imagined the reaction of Solomon to her arrival, she moved her hand to her chest, fingering the jeweled amulet she wore around her neck. The jewels were peridots glistening in green like seagrass from the Red Sea. It was her favorite gem, and Sheba had a large store of them, thanks to Tamron's many trade ventures in Egypt. 
There it was called the Gem of the Sun and was used to ward off nocturnal demons. The amulet belonged to Makeda's mother. When she died, it was given to her by her father. But it was too precious for an adventurous ten-year-old to wear. Only when she became queen did Makeda decide to wear it herself, and she never removed it from her neck. Touching the paradox eventually broke Makeda's reverie, and she remembered seeing the amulet on her mother. It had impressed her even then. She recalled how being given the amulet helped to assuage the grief she felt at her mother's untimely passing. Makeda treasured it now because it kept her mother's spirit close to her, and yet she could never be able to give it to her own child. I will be buried with it, she supposed, for my father swore me to celibacy, and I will have no offspring to pass things down to. And instead of sadness, the thought filled Makeda with resolve. I live my life for myself and for my people, and I will be fulfilled, and fulfill my duty to Sheba and all of Ethiopia only by meeting the wise King Solomon. This is my duty and my desire. When Tamron comes, I will go. I must go. I must journey to Israel. As soon as Tamron returns, just as soon as he returns, it will be soon, soon, but not soon enough for me. These are what I call my wrap-up questions. Okay. I think we covered everything, unless there's something you want to... Uh, no. no. Yeah. Okay, That's good. Fine. Great, great. Um, I suppose it's obvious. I, I was going to ask you whether you're a plotter or a pantser. Um, I assume you're a plotter, or is that not well a- quite accurate? It's not fully accurate, although I must say... Sort of the advantage of writing historical fiction is that you have a template. Yeah. You have, yes. you have yeah. something that happened um, or a tale that had already been told. So you kind of have the beginning and the ending. And I'm finding with, uh, with the, the work in progress that, you know, I keep sort of coming up with different endings yeah. and not being yeah. satisfied mm-hmm. with that. Uh, I tend to just sort of go and I find... And this gets weird, but I do find that, you know, when you're in a real strong writing uh, jag and you're really committed to it and you're turning out words and you're moving forward, that the characters sort of speak to you in a way. They, they sort of tell you what they want to do. When I get to that point, I just try to get out of the way. Yeah, and, <laughs> that's uh, the best, best thing to do. Yeah. Especially with like, so the new novel was, was really like that. I mean, the one that I'm working on now where one of the characters is just driving me nuts because, <laughs> because I, you know, I, I try to, I try to create, you know, how this relationship is going to move forward and it keeps, you know, going off course. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I sort of, I, I try to be open to inspiration and just see where it goes. Cause I can always change it and rewrite. Yes, that's that's the beauty of writing. You can always change it. Uh, the second question is, where do you write? I like to write at my desk. Sometimes I'm lazy and write in bed, which is a bad habit mm-hmm. because it, you don't have as much staying power <laughs> <laughs> once you're there. You sort of need to be uncomfortable and in a, kind of seated at a desk. But I, 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 I live in a very small studio apartment currently, and... Um, so yeah, my bedroom is my office, is my den, is my living room, and I I write there. Okay. Uh, second question. No, that was the second question. Excuse me. Third question. Um, 
all writers are also good readers, and I was wondering if what you are reading now, if anything. Again, I'm, I used to be a good reader. <laughs> I think I'm a bad reader now, possibly because I spend so much time writing. Yeah, I don't have yeah. time to read. I always have a stack of things. But actually, yeah, there's two things that I'm reading right now that I'm um, enjoying very much. And one is by a local author named Hester Fox. And I met her at um, an event at the, uh, at the new J Center that they had recently, Malden Reads, had um, with, for local authors. And I was sitting next to her, and we did a, a book exchange. And I think uh, I probably got the best out of it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's called The Witch of Willow Hill. And it's got the uh, enticing sort of tagline saying... Um, uh, there has something like there hasn't been a witch in Massachusetts in 200 years until now, but she doesn't know it yet. Oh, and um, it's really good. It's sort of gothic, which is not totally my thing, and it's kind of ghosty, which is not totally my thing. But the language is beautiful. The other thing I'm reading is a book by Steve Almond, who's uh, also a local-ish guy, Greater Boston guy, who uh, is sort of fascinating to me. He's the one who. Um, he wrote this w wonderful article about why, you know, publishers and agents are anachronisms these days and the, oh, the benefits of, interesting. yeah, the, the good, the good things about self-publishing, mm -hmm. which sort of, sort of takes the, the shame away f of it. And, uh, and he's, he's really good in both, uh, fiction and nonfiction realms. And he's, he wrote a book, it just came out just last year. Apparently there's this novel called Stoner that came out in like the 60s and didn't really do anything, but it's something he's been obsessed with for uh, a number of years. And he wrote this um, fascinating book uh, about it. It's really a very long essay uh, about the book that sort of delves into different aspects of it. And it's really sort of turning my mind uh, inside out because he addresses, you know, things about the, the book Stoner just flies in the face of conventional things about show, don't tell, and having dynamic heroes. Oh, and, interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, and just, you know, in the, the role of the narrator and stuff. It's, it's really been pretty interesting to me. Well, great, great. Well, Jason, um, thank you for stopping by. My um, pleasure. Yeah, um, the book is called Ancient Tales, Newly Told, and it is available through the usual outlets. Where is it available? Uh, it's available on Amazon, for which I make a mere pittance. Um, it was, uh, the self-publisher is Book Baby, and bookbaby.com has um, a bookshop where you can buy it, and I make a little more money. Um, <laughs> or if you know me personally, or contact me through my website, jasonmrubin.com, you'll find uh, all you need to know about purchasing it or just learning more about it. Okay, super. Well, speaking of how to contact people, if you are interested in this or any other podcast, I am Julie Kelleher 57. That's J-U-L-I-E-K-E-L-L-E-H-E-R 57 on SoundCloud, where you will hear this podcast, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and WordPress. Wow. I decided to kind of make them all the same. So please feel free to contact me. Uh, but in the meantime, again, Jason, thank you very much for stopping by. It's a pleasure. I'm glad I got a chance to talk about this uh, with you and thank you for your interest. Oh, you're welcome. This is Julie Kelleher. You have been listening to 
writing stuff. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.